sacrifice. And thank goodness they did that. Those 52 signers thank the Lord for not just our national celebration of liberty and victory, but our sacrificial Savior who gave himself for us 2,000 years ago. And that's something that we celebrate every day because it's for freedom that Christ has made us free. The scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that we're not to be entangled again in the yoke of bondage, but to walk in liberty where Christ has made us free. Can I have an amen? Amen. Put your hands together and let's give the Lord praise this morning. We, uh, we, we're just so excited to have you with us this morning, uh, especially if you're a first-time guest. Uh, I would love to be able to meet you in the foyer after the service today, all of our regulars. Of course, we have a host of folks out, folks at the lake skiing and family reunioning and vacationing and all that kind of stuff spread out over a number of states, all the way down into Florida and over into Oklahoma and different places that I know that people are traveling. Uh, I'm excited about this series. I've been telling you about it for a number of weeks we're going to be looking at Colossians in an in-depth manner. We've been doing topical series for the last several months, and uh, I always, even though we do things topically, I labor to preach from the context expositionally. And, and I'm not going to stop and do a long dis- description of what that means and give you a homiletics class on preaching, but just to say that we're, we really want to pay attention to context because context is everything. It's critical. Uh, It's so easy to go and cherry-pick favorite portions. It's easy to, uh, you know, really, I like that scripture. Uh, I I remember getting saved in a Pentecostal church, and over a period of time, uh, you know, they were doing a pretty good job building their teaching into us. Indoctrinating has a negative idea about it. Uh, It's unfortunate because it means the same thing just to put teaching into but they were doing a good job indoctrinating me in their teaching. And so one day I asked the question, I said, well, what about this verse? And it was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And I was a 10-year-old Bible student. I, I've always loved the Word of God. I was raised in a home where the Word of God was prioritized. And I, I began to read and study it at an early age. And so I asked the question in my Sunday school class one morning, and the teacher actually said, well, that's a Baptist verse. And I looked at her about like I looked at you right then. I said, What? And she said, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I, was, I guess I was a troublemaker. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, what do you mean a Baptist verse? Isn't the Bible the Bible? And are all of us, whether we're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal or whatever, aren't we supposed to take the whole word of God as the whole word of God? And I think that's the reason we have the mess sometimes we have in the body of Christ because we have a tendency for our group, it's like one time, I'll, I'll relate a little story to you. George Whitfield, who was the great British evangelist, who was one of the, the powerful three in the first great awakening, 1738, 39, 40, 41, 42. Those are about five years where the colonies were electric with the power of God. And historians, Christian and, and agnostic and secular alike, all credit the pulpits in the colonies, in the villages, in the hamlets of that early foundational period, in the early American period, literally they, they credit the, the word of God that was going out of the preachers in that day for putting into the people the liberty seeds that they would need 30 years later to amass the militia and to pull together in the face of impossible odds and to, 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 to gather together in a room and to declare life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It literally was a covenantal lawsuit against the tyranny of King George III. 
When you read the Declaration of Independence, you find it replete. That means it is filled full with scriptural citations over and over and over and over again, uh, given by our Creator in alienable rights. When you read that passage and you see what history says about the pulpits of America, Whitfield was one of those guys who one day asked a gentleman, he asked him, what do you believe? And the gentleman was very evasive. He said, I believe what my church believes. And so Whitfield, trying to drive the question a little bit deeper, he said, well, what does your church believe? He says, they believe what I believe. And so Whitfield says, uh, okay, well, what do you both believe? And the guy says, well, we both believe the same thing. How many of you know the guy couldn't answer the question? And that's the reason he was being so evasive. And so many times we rely on our heritage. And every one of them, every one of the moves of God that is labeled with a particular spiritual designer label, be it Baptist or Methodist or any of the plethora of the wonderful moves of God that have happened throughout church history, we are thankful for our heritage. But when we rely on our heritage to the point that we just say, well, that's what I believe because that's what my granny did, and we never go to the Word of God for ourselves, we are cheating ourselves. Come on, say amen. And so what I'm excited about in this particular series is that we're going to pay very close attention to four chapters in the New Testament, the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And I think it's so critical. I'm going to ask you every day from now through the rest of July. Today's July 4th. There are 27 days left after today through the 31st. I'd like you to try and commit to reading one chapter of the book of Colossians each day. Start tomorrow or today, whenever. You've got plenty of time if you have off tomorrow. Maybe you can read all four chapters. It's a really little short book. And I'd like you to read one chapter per day, Colossians 1, next day Colossians 2, next day Colossians 3, after that Colossians 4, next day go back and start one again. I'd like for us to immerse ourselves in this book for the next 30 days because we're actually going to make this a five-part series and carry it into the first Sunday in August because the Word of God is so powerful. The scripture says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And the Bible says it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, the, The very first portion of that Hebrews 4 passage says it's living and powerful. Uh, I believe the King James says it is, it is quick and powerful. In other words, quick means it's alive. That's one of those English words that we, old English words that we really don't use very often anymore. But how many of you have ever, maybe out of a nervous habit, bitten a corner off your fingernail and you pulled it down into the quick? You know what I'm talking about? That's the one thing that we, ta- we know that we still use that old English word, quick. The Bible says, if the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you, it shall quicken. That means it's going to make you faster. It will quicken. It will make alive. Everybody say quick. It's quick and powerful. It doesn't mean it's speedy. It means it's alive. It is living. It's active. It's powerful. It will get on the inside of you and it will work on you. It will fuss with you. It will deal with you. And so this morning, I want to look quickly... In your notes, our text is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. We're going to read that together. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time with me, if you would, please. Colossians chapter 2, let's read verses 6 and 7 aloud together. Here we go. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted 
and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read. I'm going to read a little bit lengthier passage. Just listen. And I think we may have this. I'm going to read, be reading from the ESV. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. This is the section I'm going to preach on, teach on this morning. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has, been, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. I'm at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Everybody say preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Bow your head with me, please, this morning. Father, we thank you today. We honor you. Thank you that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's Lord of our hearts and our lives and over this church, this city, this nation. Lord, over the whole earth, over the whole universe, everything exists in the sphere over which Christ rules. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. Everything is under his sovereign control and rule. We acknowledge that today. We thank you that we stand before a God who truly is in control and works all things together for our good. All things after the counsel of his own will. Thank you today, Jesus, that you are Lord of all. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. You can be seated together this morning. And, and I'd like it, if you would, please, to pull up that whole passage in the notes. Can you get... If, uh, Colossians 1, 1 through 20 for me, please, because I'm going to be referring to some passages this morning. Man, I tell you, I'm so excited about our usher ministry. Great things are happening. Uh, wonderful flow today in the communion. And, it, and Perry's been, I guess he thinks this is going to be a two-towel Sunday. 
or maybe this is for the good side and this is for the bad side. I don't know exactly what all that means this morning. But I'm glad to be here. Anybody else glad to be here? Amen. Wonderful. You know, as you look at this passage of Scripture from the book of Colossians, scholars say that this is probably the most profound writing that Paul ever produced. And when you, when you look to this particular Scripture, these verses today that we're paying attention to, you, you find in the very opening, and I'd like for you, if you would please, I know that some of you have gotten accustomed to seeing the Scripture on the, on the board, and you, maybe you're not bringing your Bibles, especially for this month, uh, bring them, if you would, please, because I'd like to be able to refer to this. The first two verses give us the place uh, of the indication of who is the author. Paul always gives us in his letter, he opens it saying, Paul the Apostle, to the saints at Ephesus, to the bishops and deacons at Philippi. He says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Okay? Uh, that's the, the message translation, and that'll be fine. It's not going to read how I'm going to read. That's the reason I need the ESV. He says, I've been sent. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from our Father. Everybody say, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Good. Hey, we've got it now. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace. From, thank you, my brother. That's awesome. Give them a hand back there. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. It's so great. Appreciate you getting that done for me. Now, as we look at this this morning, Paul says, I have been sent. The, the word apostle literally means a sent one, a messenger, someone who has a specific message on a specific assignment. He's been given, the message says, a special assignment. Been sent on assignment by the will of God, and he's been sent to this church in Colossae. He says, to the saints and to the faithful brothers. Now, I want you to recognize this. Paul the apostle gives us this important identification in the New Testament that when you come to Christ, you are no longer what you used to be. Every one of us are born in sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are not called sinners because we sin. It's the other way around. We sin because we are sinners. It speaks of a sin nature. But when you come to Christ, the Bible says that you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When you read Ephesians chapter 2, it, it says you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were by nature children of wrath. You were motivated, and you did the misdeeds of the flesh, all of these things that you used to do. But now when Paul the apostle addresses the believers at all of these local churches because he wants to emphasize their new identity... Not to drill in what they used to be, but now to renew their mind, to, to transform them by the renewing of their mind, to bring to them an awareness of the new nature that's on the inside of them, the Christ nature that's on the inside of them. He calls us saints. Saints, is not, saints are not people who hopefully by the end of their lives have done enough great deeds that the church will canonize them. Unfortunately, that is the Roman Catholic view. That's not the biblical view. I don't want to be offensive to anyone this morning who may have come from a Roman Catholic background, but I think it's really critical that we learn to be biblical and not believe what we believe merely because of tradition. Because the traditions of men, Mark 11, Matthew 13, can make the Word of God of no effect. Traditions of men 
can nullify, make void the Word of God, the promises of God. So we want to identify tradition and remember this. I quoted Chuck Swindoll a few weeks ago. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, which one of those do you want to have? I want to hang on to, there are times when the scripture actually refers to itself as the tradition that's been passed to us by our fathers, and those are the good principles of the word of God. But there there are two kinds of tradition, and it's when we embrace something merely because it's the way it's always been done, and we're not open to the Spirit of God bringing necessary change at times. And so that's where we don't want to become, get sunk into the whole of traditionalism, which is the dead faith of the living. I don't want a dead faith. I want a live faith. Anybody in the room want a live faith? Okay. So it's important that we realize that God calls you a saint right now. Charlie, in your, in your police car. Not just when you're sitting here and you're doing real good, but in your police car, you are a saint that's been touched by and changed and transformed by the presence and the power of God. You're a saint of the Lord. A saint. That's your identity. That's not just something that we typically think about with our African-American brothers. You know, when, they, when the Church of God in Christ folk come to town for their big annual convocation and you hear them talk about on TV, the saints are in town. Well, you know something? That's one aspect where they're really right, and we should grab a hold of that. And this is one thing where I try to do at Victory, is to bring to you the truths that each of these denominations emphasize, just like our Church of Christ brothers tell us all the time. That's not the church. That's where the church meets. The church is a living people. It is a living body made up of saints. Everybody say saints. The word saint is the Greek word hagios, and I always think of my favorite ice cream, hagendas, shalabahasa, hallelujah. Mm. <laughs> or even Ben and Jerry's. I try to make a Greek, you know. <laughs> hagios, saints, holy, called to be holy. And so Paul is writing to the saints and to the faithful in Christ Jesus at Colossae. And he opens up here in verses One and two, and I want to give you a little bit of history about this because Paul gives us some prison correspondence that is so very important. He's chained between two praetorium guards and sitting here on one side of him and on the other, handcuffs, shackled, whatever it is, chains, some kind of protection. Now, they got to where they trusted him and there was... Something better than just being in a dungeon. This wasn't like down in the the basement of the dungeon like it was in the Philippian jail. But when Paul is writing these letters in from prison, he's writing specifically to the Philippian church. So the the book of Philippians, the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, the book of Philemon, the book of 2 Timothy, all of them were written from prison. And it's absolutely amazing to me when you read these letters how he so emphasizes over and over and over and over the thanksgiving of God. Now, can you imagine what it would take on the inside of you to motivate you to even say thank you when you're chained between two guards and your liberty has been taken from you? How many of you know Paul had the ability to focus on something higher than his circumstances were in the present? 
He had the ability to, to be able to transcend those. And over and over and over in the book of Colossians, you see him talking about how thankful he is. Now, never until the very, very last chapter, the very second to last verse, he says, remember my chains. Some translations say, remember me in prison. Now, what I'm bringing to you this morning is in the middle of all of this, this apostle who has laid down his life in shipwrecks and fastings and literally being beaten five times, it says, he was striped 40 save one, 40 minus one, 39. The 39 stripes of, uh, of the Roman Empire in terms of beatings and floggings and fastings and tribulation and peril and sword and stonings. His life was on the line numerous times. And from this particular place, he's sitting down in a prison and he tells the people, come on, let's be for what God's done for us. And in the middle of his circumstances, he's able to say, I thank God for you. Now, how many of you know, no matter what you're going through right now, you can still make a choice to be thankful. Look at your neighbor and tell him right now, say, it's good to be thankful. I'll give you a little history of this church. This is an amazing message because Colossae is actually one of three cities. There's a tri-city area that's about an hour inland from Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20, Paul the Apostle goes and he serves there for a period, a little over a couple of years. And when you read in Acts 19 and 20, you find out how the Spirit of God moves and revival comes and, and, and multitudes of people turn to the kingdom of God and they get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and they're set free and they're from their bondages and they're delivered and the Spirit of God moves and culture is changed. And a young man by the name of Epaphras gets saved under Paul's ministry and He's hanging there around Ephesus and he, he just gets so excited about what God is doing in his life that he goes over and he meets some friends of his in Colossae and he witnesses to that friend and the friend gets saved and he starts a Bible study in that friend's house. You know what this amazing principle that I want you to see here? You don't have to be a big revved up apostle to go start a great work for God. Epaphras was just an ordinary, just like not, not a preacher, not a pastor, not seminary trained, hasn't been to school, no theological training, but he got saved under Paul's ministry and he got into the Word and he saw how powerful that Word had changed his life and he couldn't wait to tell somebody else. And his testimony and the presence of God together penetrated the lives of some people in Colossae and a church got started just because somebody was willing to witness for Jesus. Isn't that good? And so there are three, it's a tri-city area here, and what's amazing about this is that there is a major trade route that's going through Ephesus. And you have the three cities of Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea. All these three are dotted. They're at our inland away from Ephesus. And, and, and very much so, this would be like, let's make Memphis Ephesus. I mean, yeah, Memphis is the big trade route. It's, we've, we've got I-40 and I-55. We're sitting here at the crossroads of America. And you've got a major trade route coming through here. And because of all of this, you have people that are, that are visiting with various cultures. And they're bringing their ideas and their philosophies and their products. And all of this stuff is moving through Ephesus. And so you've got these tri-cities here, and, and it might be like Olive Branch and, 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 and uh, maybe Germantown and, and, let's say, West Memphis. And we're going to make West Memphis Colossae this morning. And, and I want you to recognize that the, the move of God gets started in this little town that is sort of outside of the bigger one, not quite as significant as Ephesus. 
but it's here and affected by all the stuff that's coming through. And particularly at this time, there are all kinds of Oriental philosophies and their practices, Eastern mysticism. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on in this Colossian church. There's a There's a cultic kind of thing that's trying to creep in. There's some false teachers that are trying to come in to the church at Colossae, and they're called Gnostics. Everybody say Gnostic. It would be spelled this way, G, silent G, G G-N-O-S-T-I-C. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, and that means knowledge. Gnosticism was a knowledge cult. It basically propagated the idea that the more you learn, the more spiritually mature you are. And how many of you know we can sort of slip into that idea in 21st century Christianity? You start to think, well, you know more stuff and start to think that maybe maturity is all about learning principles or maybe Greek words. How many of you know maturity is when I start to live out what I do know? Maturity is when I decide to live like what I think like, and what you think is important. It's critical because belief does affect behavior. And we've got a heresy challenge that is here in front of us. This this whole thing that's going on here, this trade route, this major cosmopolitan city of Ephesus is affecting all these tri-cities around it. And we're exposed to all kinds of new ideas. There's a large Jewish colony in Colossae. And this heresy that's creeping into this church is a blend of Jewish legalism. I know we don't have any legalism in the South. Are you with me this morning? A little bit of Eastern mysticism. Throw in a little transcendental meditation. A little Oriental philosophy. Some pagan astrology. Don't show your hand this morning, but how many of you check your horoscope on a regular basis? Don't, Don't show your hand. I don't want to see it. I want to tell you something. You might think it's cute or funny, but if you pay attention to that mess, if you pay attention to what the stars say, then you are contributing, you are participating in a whole pagan kind of belief system that the alignment of the stars and the principalities, the demonic beings, those spiritual beings over those are having effect and influence in your life. And I don't don't care what your sign is. Whether you're a Leo or a Capricorn or an Aries or anything else, how many of you know you're not identified and the circumstances of your life are not affected by any shape of a planet or a moon or a star? And basically the apostle says here, if you want to know Christ, you don't need a telescope or a microscope or a horoscope. But you need to just fix your eyes firmly on Jesus. And so we've got all this mess that's coming into the Colossian church. You've got some Jewish legalism, some Eastern mysticism, some Oriental philosophy, some pagan astrology, a little bit of Christianity, and all this stuff is mixed together in a Gnostic cult, in a, in a knowledge cult. And somebody says, well, so what does this have to do with us today? Oh, my goodness, my brother, my sister, it has everything to do with us today. One young man in Afghanistan was surveyed among a whole survey crew that went in as a Christian organization, and they had asked a number of these soldiers, what do you believe? And they came away saying that the consensus of most of these soldiers in Afghanistan was what they believed about God is one part Sunday school, one part Dr. Phil, one part Oprah. Are you with me? One part, just a little bit of, hey, all the roads lead to the same place. Everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't really matter what you believe just so long as you're sincere. How many of you hear what I'm talking about this morning? When we let that kind of stuff creep into our thinking, 
when we make Jesus merely prominent among a bunch of other influential thinking and philosophy, we've just dethroned him because he has to be not prominent, but preeminent. Come on, put your hands together this morning. Jesus has to be preeminent. Now, I want to hit the ground running here with this section because we'll move quickly through this stuff. That's why you have so many notes here because I just want to get them to you. Paul starts to begin to give them the Lord thanks. He says in verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, Paul had never been to Colossae. He did not have anything to do with establishing that church. A disciple of his, Epaphras, had. So he says, I've heard about you, man. It's amazing what the, the, the Spirit of God's doing among you. It's, it's being sounded abroad. I'm hearing the testimony, the reputation of the Spirit of God and how you have a love for each other and for all the saints. It's being shouted abroad. And he tells us what he begins to pray for here in verse 4. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Everybody say faith. faith. And of the love that you have for all the saints. Everybody say love. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, I want you to write these three things down. There are three marks of a true believer. Everybody say faith, faith. love, and hope. Now, you find these throughout the epistles of Paul. As a matter of fact, it comes in a little different order in 1 Corinthians 13, in that wedding chapter. Love endures all things, hopes all things, believes all things, go on and on and on. And it comes to the end. It says, and there abides these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Old King James says, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. So it's that kind of agapeo, that unconditional kind of the God kind of love. So these are the three marks of a believer. We have faith in Jesus. We have love for each other. And all of this is motivated by a hope that is laid up for us, reserved for us, kept the Bible says in the epistle of Peter, by the power of God ready to be revealed in the last day, there is a hope for us that has been laid up in heaven. And he goes on to say what the effects of the gospel are here. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now I want you to grab this this morning because this is so very, very important that we recognize that the gospel has two components. Everybody say grace, grace. and truth. Now this is important. The Bible says in, in John chapter 1, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth through who? Whom? Jesus Christ. So the gospel is all about grace, something we don't earn or deserve. Truth, which is God's word itself, the standard by which he judges, the standard by which he loves. There are a lot of ideas that can be called true, but only his word can be called truth. They heard and were saved. They believed the effects of the gospel were the word of truth when they understood the gospel of God, the grace of of God in truth. He says in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Everybody say learned. Now this is the Greek word discipled. It's methetes. The Bible says in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Methetes. You're a mentor. You're a discipler. 
lead someone else, sit down with them one-on-one. It's not the idea of you sitting in the room hearing me teach. That's, this is not disciple-making here. Now, I know you're learning something, but this word, which it says here you learn from Epaphras, is something that is much more intimate. The idea of a disciple-making relationship in the New Testament is the way the disciples went and lived with Jesus. They put down what they had been doing. They're not just their sin, but their whole lifestyle. They went and lived. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They observed what he did. They did what he did. Instruction, they participated. Disciple-making takes place when you have someone who shows you. John Maxwell said it this way, a leader knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. If we're going to disciple people and the delta is going to be transformed from the kingdom of God, it is not just about getting people into this room to hear me or anybody else that we have up here preach. But it's about each of us, like Epaphras, opening our mouths to our next door neighbors and saying, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was bound, but now I'm free. See, this is still connected to the series we just came out of. It's about one thing. This morning, I'm preaching to you one thing. The one thing is is that Jesus is preeminent. He is Lord over all. And I have to be rooted in His Lordship. Hallelujah. To learn means to go alongside and travel and to observe, to live with, to literally see the power and the presence of God manifested in someone's daily life. And Paul begins to pray. He says, I should have grabbed this. He says, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made to, known to us your love in the Spirit. Jump to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Everybody say, His will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, this is what he prays for. Three things. The first one is spiritual intelligence. Everybody say spiritual intelligence. Now, I want you to grab this this morning because he starts to talk about being filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul was so amazed by the power of these false teachers that were creeping into Colossae, and he used, he was so much wisdom, it was just profound. He actually used their own vocabulary in order to reach in and grab the hearts of the Colossian believers and bring them back to a place of balance where Christ was not just prominent among all this other mess, astrology and mysticism, oriental philosophy, Jewish legalism, a little bit of Christianity, But he used their terms, and they use terms all the time like wisdom and knowledge and fullness. And you'll see those words appear over and over, fullness especially, over and over and over in the book of Colossians. Paul was using the terms that the cult, the Gnostic cult used in order to teach the people of God and say, listen, they think they know what fullness is. This is the real fullness. True fullness only exists in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Christ plus nothing is everything. What we need to recognize, Jesus is all and in all. We recognize that we understand the will of God through the Word of God. Say that with me. We understand the will of God through the Word of God. Secondly, besides spiritual intelligence, he prayed for practical Christian obedience. 
I want you to see this. There are three important words here he prays for. The first one in the blank is wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. Now, look at this. He says, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk, everybody say walk, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Everybody say work. All right. I can't work for Jesus unless I learn to walk with Jesus, and I can't walk with him unless I know his will. And so Paul is saying, I'm praying for you to be filled with spiritual, the fullness of the spiritual wisdom and knowledge of his will. So it's wisdom, I know him, and then it's walk, I walk with him, and then because I walk with him, then I have a work for God that begins to bear fruit. Now, how many of you see that? That's a pattern that'll work in your life, in your marriage. You have to know him first. You learn to walk with him. And then out of that, you learn to work with and for Jesus. Amen? So he's prayed for spiritual intelligence. He's prayed for practical Christian obedience. And then finally, in your notes, he begins to pray for moral excellence there in that third principle under the second point. Moral excellence. He says, I want you to be strengthened... Let me grab this, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I love that. Everybody say power and might. That sounds like Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord and in the what? Power of his might. Power is the Greek word dunamis. It's inherent power. It's the power in that Roman candle that you're going to light today. But it's not activated until you light the fuse. It's inherent power. But the word might is demonstrated by when you see those candles flare. That's the, the manifestation of the power. Are you hearing me? He says, I want you to be strengthened with inherent power. You're holding a cannon there, and it's got a hundred big, magnificent. Going to wait till dark tonight. Put plenty of bug spray on. Spray the mosquitoes away. You light the fuse. The thing's sitting there. It's filled with dunamis. It has inherent power. But it, the, the, the power's not manifested. The might doesn't show up until you stick the fuse to it and then back up. Boom, boom, boom. So God is saying through the Apostle Paul, I pray for you to be strengthened with inherent power on the inside that by the Spirit he activates and it becomes, becomes manifest in your life. And that's not just to have a big show. It's not just to have a big bang. Dunamis, we get the English word dynamite, pow. But it's to begin to produce something. It's to produce might, manifested power and strength. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say, he says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all, everybody say, endurance and patience. Now you know it's one thing. You, you can get filled with the Holy Ghost. You can speak in tongues all day long. You can prophesy. You can lay hands on the sick. But if you can't have some thanksgiving even when your circumstances are bad. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but he says... Strengthened with power and might for all endurance and patience with joy and giving thanks. So we have these two little couplets every time. You have power and might. You have endurance and patience. You have joy and thanksgiving. How many of you know this has some implications in how I live? It has some implications in what comes out of my mouth. It, impl it has some implications in the attitude, whether I have some joy in my heart and what I'm doing for Jesus. Are you hearing me this morning? Endurance is the idea of holding up under difficult circumstances. 
Patience is the idea of long-suffering with people. How many of you know it's easier to do the first than it is to do the second? Moses trooped through the wilderness, enduring all the junk that he had to deal with, but the people made him so angry one day, he didn't listen to God, and he smote the rock the second time when God said, speak to it. And because he was so ticked off at the way the people were treating him, he missed his opportunity to enter the promised land. Don't let, I'm going to be real plain, the stupidity of people or let me make it personal, my own knee-jerk reaction to what they do, let me get so out of focus and distracted that I miss the promises of God in my own life. Now, if I hadn't said anything else this morning, I'm preaching real good right there. It's, it's one thing to get under the plow and to endure the hard circumstances. It's something else to have long-suffering and to look at somebody that just doesn't get it in any way they're manifesting that, you have to be long-suffering and love with the love of Jesus. Are you hearing me this morning? So he says, I'm praying that you may be strengthened with power and might so you can walk in endurance and patience. And he says, to be able to do all of that with joy, mm, I still have joy. I still have joy mm. after all I've been through. Help me out this morning. I still have joy. Sing it with me now. I still have joy. And I put it in too high a key. I still have joy. <laughs> after all I've been through. God knows all I've been through. I've been enduring some stuff that I've been through. I still, help me, have joy. And he says, if you got a little bit of joy, Thanksgiving is just what? Automatic. It's just going to flow out of you. And look at this. This is where we start to see the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. This next section, we talk about the finished work of Jesus. Everybody say the finished work. Help me, help me gear in and get this last section. We're at the third place here. I heard there was a, 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 a pool this morning, a bet that was set with all these notes. Somebody said, what do you figure, 1.30? My wife said, oh, maybe 2 o'clock. So anyway, here we go. We're almost finished. Here we go. The preeminence of Christ. I want you to see this. First of all, in this aspect, he is Savior. Now, most of American evangelical Christianity preaches every Sunday morning some form of John 3.16 with a little spice. It's basically the same thing cooked up over and over and over and over and over and over and over. You're a sinner, you need a Savior. And you got a church filled with people, maybe massive crowds, church filled with people that are hearing the same message every Sunday. You're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good, you're going to hell, you better change, you better return, you better repent. And you're talking to a room full of believers that are supposed to be identifying with a new creation in Christ. And every Sunday sitting there doubting their salvation because they've been told week after week, you ain't no good, you ain't no good. And they start to believe that mess. Well, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm just going to sin a little bit every day. Ain't nothing in the Word that tells you that. It says, if we sin, if we confess, He is faithful and just. You have an advocate with the Father, if. I mean, you know, every day you ought, you're supposed to become stronger. You're supposed to be growing in your sanctification. What used to bind you doesn't have to bind you anymore. 
You can get victory over the habit that has bound you in the past. You can get deliverance and be set free from it. You don't have to take that stuff to the grave. Come on, somebody. He says, giving thanks to the Father, real quick, who has qualified. Everybody say past tense. Who has qualified us. Let's get all this real quickly. I want you to see this. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. What tense is that? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. What tense is transferred? Past. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Everybody say, he redeemed us. The forgiveness of sins. Everybody say, he's forgiven us. All right, all of that right there shows you qualified us, delivered us, transferred us, redeemed us, forgiven us. Those are five things right there. God brought us out so that he could bring us in. Deuteronomy 6.23. To get the people of God to the promised land, God had to get them out of Egypt. Egypt is the house of sin. It's Pharaoh who's a type of Satan. All of the taskmasters of Pharaoh are, 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 are like the hordes of hell. They're, they're demonic powers that are bringing things against the covenant people of God. And God delivered them in Egypt by the blood, the application of the blood of the lamb to the doorposts. You get delivered in Egypt in the bondage, in the place where, where, where Satan has trapped you. You're dead. You can't, make, you can't deliver yourself. You, you, you can't set yourself free. A man who's bound can't set himself free. A man who's dead can't make himself alive. God comes along and by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Jesus, you're made alive and the death angel passes over and you're brought out of Egypt. God doesn't just bring you out of Egypt and stop. He brings you out of Egypt so he can bring you into the promised land. And let me just say this. The promised land's not heaven. Chile Jordan's not death. The promised land's not heaven because there are no giants in heaven. There are no walled cities in heaven. There are none of those kinds of challenges where Joshua has to go in and invade the land and put out all of the enemy. There is perfect order in heaven. Our prayer as believers is to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it what? Is in heaven. Everything up there is in perfect order. The sweet by and by is all taken care of. God's put me into the middle of this place right here to bring order out of chaos, to bring glory out of all of these circumstances that I'm in. It's not just to get me out of sin so he can have me tie a knot on the end of the rope and wait till the rapture. No, 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 no. If anything, I have been activated now. I've, I've, I've been put on special assignment. You're sitting in the room this morning so that you can be trained to walk out of here. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, Bond. James Bond. You're an agent. 007. You're an agent for the kingdom of God. You are here for the purpose of bringing change. You are sent out into this world you are supposed to be, Philippi, like I preached last Sunday, a colony of heaven right here. You're supposed to be heaven in the middle of all of this hell around you. You're supposed to be light in the middle of all this darkness, salt in the middle of all this corruption. Come on, if anything, I'm preaching to you some victory because he has qualified you. It's not about did you, were you good enough this morning or were you good enough this last week. It has nothing to do with anything that has anything to do with you. It was all about what he's already done. He qualified you. 
King James says he made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us. He has transferred us. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. This is literally a picture. The Apostle Paul is giving them a picture of how God brought the covenant nation out of Egypt and pushed them into the promised land to take hold of the promises of God. Promised land is the picture of all the promises of God that you have yet to apprehend and take hold of. There's some giants standing in your way. There's some wall cities. There's a flooded river called Jordan at flood stage. But God says, I am able. Don't be afraid. I will be with you everywhere that you go. Come on, saints. Notice this morning I'm not calling you sinners. I said, come on, saints. Because that's what the Apostle Paul refers to you. As. Last section. He's Lord. Now, okay, Pastor, you've told us how everybody preaches Savior, Savior, Savior. What's, what's, what's the big deal? Well, two times in the book of Acts, Jesus is called Savior. 24 times in all of the New Testament, he's called Savior. In the book of Acts, he's called Lord 96 times in one book alone. In the whole New Testament, Jesus is called Lord 747 times. Now let me just ask you this question this morning. If all you ever hear is what He did for you and how He saved you, and you never hear how He is Lord, the Bible calls Him Savior in the New Testament 24 times, calls Him Lord in all of the New Testament 747 times. How many of you know if we're faithful to the Word, we ought to be majoring on what the Bible majors on. We ought to be emphasizing what the Scriptures emphasize. Yes, He is Savior. That's how you get involved in this thing. How you get birthed into the kingdom of God is because of what He did for you. But that's just the door. That's just the entrance. Come on, there's a whole bunch to the rest of this thing. It's not just what he has done, past tense, qualified, delivered, redeemed, forgiven, transferred, all of this. See, I want you to recognize this morning that you're not a part of the kingdom of darkness. You've already been part of right now. You are in the kingdom of light. You have been put into the kingdom of God's dear son. You are in it right now. You are in the kingdom of God. It's amazing to me how we can miss something so critical as that. He's Lord. As the Savior, He's my priest. That's what He does for me. But as Lord, He's my King. Priest is about what He does. King is about who He is. If He's the Lord of my life, it means He's the ruler. He's the master. He's the final authority. Let me just put it in 21st century terms. When we say lordship, you don't talk about that at the, at the water cooler at work. You know what lordship means translating into our 21st century language? It means he's the boss. Jesus Christ is the boss. Do you remember one time in your neighborhood when somebody, when people used to actually get involved in the lives of the children around them and they would feel a sense of responsibility in a community and they'd walk out there maybe when your mom or your dad were away and they'd see you doing something you shouldn't have been doing and maybe one of the neighbors would say, uh-uh, you're not going to do that because I know your mama. And once in a while, some little kid who needed some little bit of, of adjustment would, would go, what, what would you hear him say? You ain't the boss of me. <laughs> and, and the adult would probably say, no, I'm not, but I'm trying to help you. But your mom and daddy is and they're going to hear exactly what's happened today. How I many of you know Jesus 
is our Savior because he did deliver us, he did qualify us, he did redeem us, he did transfer us, he did forgive us. But saints, after he's done all that, he's the Lord. He's the boss of my life. And if I can submit myself, if I can root my life in his lordship, in his preeminence, he's supreme, he's over everything. He's not just prominent in that he's one of a, among a number of voices that are influencing me. No, he's preeminent. He's the final voice. He's the last voice. He has the final say. Look at this. This is so awesome. Just hang with me, Abby. You're doing so good over there, sweetheart. I've got, I, I got to get these powerful verses here real quickly. Are you with me? Let's go. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. That means the exact representation. He's the firstborn of all creation. That firstborn word doesn't refer to time because Jesus is not created. Let me just say this this morning. This is where so many of the secret organizations miss this. This is why I'm not a Mason. When you go through that stuff and you reach the 32nd degree level, you dethrone Jesus. And he becomes prominent among the plethora of all the other gods. It is critical that as believers, we do not let ourselves be involved in a Gnostic cult of any kind. I have friends that are less Latter-day Saints. They are some of the cleanest living I, I, I have one friend who is in a very prominent position. I'm not even going to say this because this, these go on the internet. And I don't, I don't want, I'm not going to mention his name. I'm not going to even mention his job. But he's very prominent. Good friend. And he's on me all the time about caffeine. You've got to quit that coffee. I mean, these, these are clean living people. No tobacco, no coffee. Very conscientious about diet. And we're going to talk about some of these things in Colossians, but you know where they miss it? They miss it on who Jesus is. Because a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, a Latter-day Saint, all believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't believe that He is God the Son. Neither do the Masons, any of these other secret organizations. And I, I, really, I really question involvement in anything like that that takes away from the clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is. He was not created. He was, from the beginning, God who came to be in the flesh. You sit down with a group of people and, who try to bring all the religions together sort of to syncretize them. It's the word that I didn't really share earlier in the message, but the heresy that was going on in Colossae was that of syncretism. That was where they were just trying to pull all this stuff together in one, blend it all together in one big mix. It's just, just a big Oprah festival. Now, you know, she does good. She gives away cars. She blesses people. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to bash anybody, but anybody who will put up this mess that she's put up on the web in the last few months, refusing to declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Girl was raised in church. She knows better than that mess. She's got this Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E, all of his teaching in some new one world religion kind of thing. When you don't give Jesus the proper place, when you make him prominent, you've just dethroned him. You've just taken him away from all that who he is. And saints, that's what's going to ultimately change the world. 
Come on, put your hands together. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. That means position. It doesn't have anything to do with time. It's not saying he was born at all. It literally, the word means he's prior, he's preeminent, he's overall. This is a word that's used in the scriptures. Matter of fact, Solomon was not David's firstborn. But if you see Psalm 89, 27, he says, I will appoint him to be the firstborn. That literally means that he is given the place of prominence. When Solomon was made the king, he wasn't anywhere near the first one born to David as a son. But the word of the Lord says, I will appoint him to be the firstborn, meaning that he's given the place of prominence. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay. For by him all things were created. That's Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, what you've got to realize this morning is that in God's sovereignty and the fact that Jesus is Lord over all, he is even ruling today with crazy people doing awful things. Proverbs 16 says he created the wicked for the day of destruction and God will get glory even through all of that. Are you hearing me this morning? See, so many times we don't hear a God preach that big. A lot of our Pentecostal churches, some of our evangelical churches, it's almost like God and Jesus are at odds and you've got this kind of a big system of dualism and they're both battling it out. It's kind of like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. And all the saints of God better pray so that we can win. That's what I was raised in. And finally, I woke up to realize one day he's already won. He won this thing at the cross 2,000 years ago. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is ruling in every aspect of this whole universe. Everything is under his control. Come on, somebody. That absolutely amazes me and sets me free to recognize how awesome this God is. Almost finished. All things were created through and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now the translation says all things consist. Did you know that when you study matter, even this piece of wood wrapped in this black carpet right here. I'll tell you what, let me just let me hold this phone up here. This looks like it's solid. But actually, the molecules of this plastic are all electric particles that are moving around very rapidly. So how is it being held together? Did you know that all matter really is more space than it is anything else? Well, you know, you look like you're not just bouncing around the room, Pastor Michael. You've got some limitation. You have some borders to your body. It's called your skin. Did you know that all of matter that you look at, the walls around you, the seat you're sitting on, the floor that you walk on, it's made up of electro electronic or electrolyzed particles that are moving very quickly. And there's space in between all of those. So how does all that stuff get held together? Well, the Christian answers it this way, by Jesus Christ. The whole universe is held together. Are you hearing me? Because he's the one who was before all things. All things are made for him and through him and are for his glory. 
And it is because of Him this morning that everything in your life is not falling apart. He is holding it together and your life is consisting. It is being held together by His power and His presence. Finally this morning, He is the head of the church. Verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, that doesn't mean He's the first one to be resurrected. That's just again saying... His resurrection is prominent over all the others. And why would the Apostle Paul put these two words together? It's so strange to talk about firstborn from the dead. It seems to be kind of an opposite situation here. Birth and death. He was literally saying that Jesus went into that womb, but that womb, that tomb rather, I'm sorry, I just gave it away. Jesus went into that tomb and that tomb became a womb for the whole new creation. That this morning, and I'm bringing this to a close right here, your circumstances where you feel like there's not an answer for, what you feel like might have died in the way of a hope or a dream, God says, I want you to let that thing move into a place of where it looks like there's nothing else left. That's where the tomb becomes a womb and God brings life out of death. Jesus was given the place of the firstborn from among the dead. And finally it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. He's the first, He's the last, He's over everything, He is Lord of all. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. This morning, I'm finished and I just want to ask you this question today. He's Savior of my life, but that's not where it stops. He's Lord of my life. He's the boss. He's calling the shots. He holds the place of preeminence. This message this morning is all about who has the final say in your life in your life and in mine. You're sitting here this morning and I would just ask you this question today. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? None of us has any hope of inheriting anything in heaven reserved for us apart from that. We are due the wrath of God. It is by grace, period, any of us are saved. Every one of us are. If we got what we deserved, we would be hell-bound. God, by His mercy, does not give us what we deserve. By His grace, He gives us what we don't deserve. And that is His favor and His love and His goodness given to us. Bow your heads with me right now, if you would, please. Gracious God and Father, Lord, we acknowledge as we are in this place this morning the liberty that we've been given in this nation. Lord, some of us are sitting here today right now we don't have liberty or freedom in our hearts because we're bound in sin. We're dead and not alive. We can't set ourselves free. We can't make ourselves alive. Lord, all we can do is cry out to you. Lord, as you stir by the Holy Spirit and you draw us, the scripture says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. 
Spirit of God, we acknowledge today that you have to do that. I can't preach good enough. We can't sing good enough. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about only the Holy Ghost of God. Touch a heart today. Touch a life. Regenerate. Make alive. In Jesus' name. With every head still bowed.